Welcome to Louise's Health Kick podcast with Louise Mercier. Louise is a nutritional therapist, award-winning author of How Food Shapes Your Child, and a presenter on Early Years TV Food Channel. As well as all this, Louise is the force behind the Health Kick, promoting a healthy lifestyle without the contradictory and often misplaced advice in the world of nutrition. Hello and welcome to Louise's podcast. Today I am delighted to be joined by Professor Paul Gately. Paul is a Professor of Exercise and Obesity at Leeds Beckett University. He is one of the UK's most respected experts in this field. Paul is also a director of More Life UK Limited. We'll chat to Paul more about More Life, but it is a program that provides a range of specialist community weight programs for adults and children. Paul has 25 years experience working with adults and children with obesity. He advises government, has presented TV programs in the UK and the US and contributed to the International Obesity Task Force and the World Health Organization's report on childhood obesity. So for expert advice on obesity management, please do keep listening as Professor Gately is certainly at the forefront of research and initiatives. So thank you very much for joining us today, Paul. Um, I'm really interested in this area. Obviously, it's something that I spend a lot of time in. But I'm what I really want to know is what drove you to steer your career into this direction and go as far as you have within this field? My background was I was an athlete and um, I wasn't very well. And so I decided I wanted to take a summer off and I decided to go and work on a camp in America. And I'm basically headed out like most people, 18 years old for, for a new experience. And and actually went through working with Camp America um, and got dumped at a weight loss camp for children. So here was me, you know, a few thousand miles away from home. First time I'd ever been on a plane, actually. And I was introduced to this sort of this weight loss camp. And I walked into the room. Um, most of the staff were there, about 80 staff. Uh, average weight of those staff members was about 25 stone um, and one guy who weighed 45 stone. I weighed about nine stone. And so it was this sort of real, I, I mean, I'd seen these sort of things on TV, but knew nothing about it. And and I suppose like most people, I, I had the experience of, well, it's really simple, isn't it? You know, I, I was an elite level athlete. It's really simple. You exercise more and you eat less and it's dead simple. And why can't you do it? And and I guess it was that summer that really, it really showed to me, I guess, three things. First of all, that that sort of the eat less and exercise more sounds good, but put it into practice quite hard. What I also learned very, very quickly was um, I, I'd never been somebody who was naturally very good at things. I just had to work at it. And I, I realized that when I started to apply the principles of sort of taking steps and more slowly working with people and children with obesity that actually my expertise had an impact um and I guess thirdly was was really you know it's much more complicated and so I then I was then just fascinated by this program I'd go out every year and for the last four years I sort of undertook it as part of my PhD research I got a job at the university uh, on the back of this and then basically I set up our own weight loss camp at the university in 1999 that received huge media attention. Um, and then, then it grew from there, really. We got a lot of media attention and really, you know, a lot of the questions that were asked of us were questions we were asking ourselves too. And so then it became, 
a really fascinating research career where I had all these questions, all these, you know, these difficulties when we were trying to help children and their families navigate this sort of really difficult, challenging issue. Um, and so that became a passion, but mm-hmm. a, a collective effort from our from our my colleagues and in our institution. And you mentioned research and the the argument that I think we see portrayed in the media and we hear a lot and we hear people themselves almost feeling guilty because they, they've tried to eat less, move more, and it, it hasn't worked. And, and we understand obesity is more complicated. And you mentioned the research that you do. So could you talk a bit more about the complexities of obesity and why it isn't as straightforward as eat less, move more? And, and sometimes being told that as an individual who is carrying extra weight and the inability to achieve that has a really detrimental impact on their self-esteem and and their mental health as well as their physical health. So it's a lot more complicated than I think people think it is. So the the reality is, is that it is as simplistic as eat less and exercise more. I mean, from a physiological perspective, we can't argue with that. So um, you know, an energy balance is really clear. And, and all the work that I've done with, in my life, and particularly our work in residential weight loss camps, showed that when we control the variables of diet and the con- variable of exercise or activity, and we control the energy in and energy out, um, the children lose weight. And they lose weight at a very, very consistent rate. And there are, there are slight variations in that, but pretty much there is real consistency. When we put people in laboratories and feed them a certain amount of calories um, and measure all that goes in and all that comes out, what we know is that we can over, overfeed to a certain level and we can underfeed to a certain level and the body responds accordingly. So we, we know that the fundamental principles of energy balance are right now. So th- those are the facts. Okay. However, the factors that influence those variables or those two behaviors in our environment are incredibly complex and in the real world is incredibly complex. And I'm making that statement not to challenge the, the, those people that say it's really hard and I've tried all these things and I've, I've failed. I make that statement because what I don't want to do is say that there's something magical and mystical out there for losing weight. The trick is not to argue against energy balance. The trick is to determine what are the the factors that drive our ability to, you know, if we want to lose weight, to uh, achieve an energy deficit. So what might they be? And I think this is where it now gets a bit more complex. So fundamentally, one of the things that we see as a common factor is mental health challenges have a profound impact on people's ability to achieve the imbalance that they're trying to achieve and that imbalance is not an imbalance that is just achieved in a short period of time it's achieved in a long period of time so weight loss and weight loss maintenance require those behaviors to be consistent over time and so you know in all walks of life everybody experiences challenges trauma and so many other events and so you know they can knock you off track um we also know very clearly that social factors influence the amount of money we have in our pocket uh, influence it. We also know that social factors like our demands of our job or demands of our family can knock us off our ability. And, you know, it'd be nice to live in a world where we all had a chef and we all had a personal trainer and we all could do a few hours a day working and leisure and family, you know, the, the perfect lifestyle that's depicted out there. 
you know, would be very wonderful. And it may be maybe what a couple of people on the planet have lived over the last thousands of years. But the reality is for most people, there's a whole range of things going on. And so that for me is what's critical is appreciating that energy imbalance is a fact. However, the factors that influence those two behaviors is where the complexity arises. Um, and I guess that's what, for me, I want to make clear, because if you buy into the fact that it's not just about energy in and energy out, you then say, okay, so what is it about? And <laughs> there isn't anything. I mean, you know, so, but if you can accept that it is about energy and energy out, the question is, is what influences those two, those two behaviors? And how might you achieve a consistent energy imbalance or energy intake and energy balance versus uh, energy expenditure over a period of time? And I think that's the key thing to do. And, you know, working with the, the children and families that I work with, for a couple of examples, I'd give is a mum that I work with that was, abs- you know, single mum, really challenged financially. She had three children and her youngest for probably a whole range of emotional issues, wanted to be treated the same as her brother and sister. But she was sort of seven years younger, but she Mm. wanted the same portions. And mum sort of fell into the sort of behaviour of feeding them all the same and letting them sleep the same and letting them do the same activity. And clearly, you know, she was just being a mum and she was trying her best and she was working really hard and she she loved all of her kids. All the things you'd want in a home environment but the mistake that I alerted her to and talked about, and she'd not even picked up on it, was that actually, why would you feed a sort of an eight-year-old girl the same as what you'd feed a 14-year-old boy? And I could see the logic behind that, that she want that, you know, they all wanted to be the same uh, and she wanted to treat them the same. And there were other reasons why there was that bit of a pressure on the family. So it was really about helping her appreciate that there's different people within our families and uh, and people that we're supporting need different forms of support and advice and actually when she started to do that and when her daughter was involved in that communication too and understood it as well so mum became okay with it the daughter became okay with it and they started to now find a sort of more appropriate path for them as a family so you know so fundamentally example again food the activity were two key components of that but the behaviors and circumstances under which those behaviors were being expressed was the thing that needed a bit of work and consideration and you know i'm not that that's an example rather than you know the totality of what we did because we needed to do a lot of work with mum to build a confidence we needed to do a bit of work with the daughter it was really about working with mum and daughter and other family members to sort of try and create a sort of better and more understanding environment and I think that's kind of the, the person-centered approach that you um, are trying to advocate rather than a one-size-fits-all, which I think can often be portrayed as, well, everyone just needs to do this. Or, and of course, the diet industry is, is great at doing this. And if everyone does this, you'll all get this result. And of course, everyone is is different, not just children of different ages, but grown-ups with different sizes, different lifestyles, different levels of stress, different body composition. They're all going to respond very differently along with their own personal behavioural drivers, as you've alluded to, that is the thing that 
not only what you know governs what we put on a plate but what we crave what we have that emotional attachment to with food um all of that connection that can be built up from habitual eating and well i just i always do this or we always have this at 11 o'clock those habits that people fall into and the eating behaviors that they have are all very unique to each individual and so the one size fits all kind of doesn't work when people try it and then have the low self-esteem when it hasn't worked for them but it has worked for their friend because they're very different um so with the person-centered approach is that kind of the the how you would work with people very much looking at individual drivers and lifestyles and i guess for us What's critical is the building of the skills and competency. One can see why following a diet or following a very particular exercise program is of interest. When people, you know, when people have busy lives and challenging lives, then following a, a very simple plan to get to the goal can be an effective way to achieve a short-term goal. And I, and I guess we may use those tactics at times. Okay, so there may be times when people need to lose weight quickly. So maybe for surgery and we may support them in a way. And as you say, very individualistic that we may use a certain dietary approach that helps people drop some weight quickly to achieve an objective. But that's that's a short term measure. And actually, the work that we do tends to move away from that sort of very prescriptive do A, B and C and you'll get X as an outcome to We need to build up your skills and competencies in understanding food, understanding activity, understanding your emotions, understanding how when you're in a challenging situation, you respond and behave, understanding by not sleeping, you know, six, seven, eight hours a day, what's appropriate for you. The knock on effect is you maybe miss breakfast. You maybe then reach for more cups of um, your, your sort of favorite latte and have three or four of them, and there's nearly a thousand calories. And you've not even noticed that in any way, shape, or form. And helping people understand and connect a bit more with themselves emotionally, because to me, the, the individual journey has to be owned by that individual. And a dietary approach is not individualistic in any way, shape, or form. But it is hard to do an individualist approach because, as we've discussed, there's a, there's a whole range of complex variables as to why people have a weight that they have. And if they want to do something about it, then it's even more complex. What I believe we do very well is understand the needs of that individual. What, what are the drivers? What are the factors? And start to put into place practices that enable them to move forward. And one of the challenges is that often that those messages can be undermined by the sort of populist communication around these things. And I'll give you an example of a child that we were we, we were working with on a residential program, and he'd been funded to come to us by a local authority. And I, and I make that because he lived in a in a block of flats in London, uh, great kid, great family, uh, but they were living on the breadline, and basically. He'd done really well on the programme, went home and was doing all of his exercise every day, joined a load of after-school clubs he'd never done before. So he was doing the exercise bit. But the problem for him was he was, uh, I think, he was 12 years old and he'd come home at four o'clock, but his parents wouldn't get home till seven o'clock. And so we sort of sat down and said, well, you know, what's the problem? Well, he eats something when he gets home at four, like most children do, mm-hmm. my kids do. And then he eats again with his parents at sort of seven, seven thirty, eight o'clock. 
But the volume of food he was eating at those two eating episodes when we explored them was problematic. And he said, well, I, you know, I'm too hungry to wait. But actually, when I eat with my parents, I'm not that hungry, but I'm hungry enough to eat, but not that hungry. So, so we sort of sat down with the family and said, OK, well, what's the solution? And mum said, you know, I don't want him cooking anything uh, because I'm nervous. He's 12 years old. You know, he's by himself and understandably. And so we said, OK, well, what about getting some, you know, microwave meals? You know, and now most nutritionists and dietitians at this moment may well be rolling their eyes and putting their Give head it down the spine. Just yeah, yeah, exactly. And and of and of you know, and we understand that. But I guess this was about a practical solution. So what we did, we spent time with the family. Said what what meals you like, what is it you're likely to do, and we went and we started working with them, selecting the best microwave meals, understanding the ingredients, understanding what his preferences were, understanding the portions. And then we put together a plan to say, okay, well, don't just eat when you come home. Eat a tiny bit later, but you've got your own microwave meal. You can plan it, prepare it. And the point was we give him a tiny bit of time from getting home to have a meal. And we're closing the gap between the time when he was eating and the time when when his parents were eating. Then he would have a light snack, a supper type thing with his mum and dad a bit later on and it cracked that was the solution now it's not course it is not the ideal solution and i'm not suggesting it's a solution for the rest of his life yeah, either. yeah. but actually to get that that young person at that stage in his life to be back on track we worked out what was a pragmatic solution to still tweaking the energy imbalance achieving a family set of circumstances and and accessing food that some people may turn a nose apart but to be honest, it's food. I mean, the other thing I'd say, if you look in the last 20 or 30 years, the, the quality of, you know, microwave meals have increased significantly because, you know, that's what the industry has been required to do. But that's an aside point from the fact that it was a practical, pragmatic solution to this family circumstances. And to, so to me, that's what it's about. But it can so easily be undermined by these sort of, you know, these sort of populist messages of, well, microwave meals are really bad. You know, and and home cooked food has got to be done every day because that's what our TV chefs sort of pump down our throats every day. And, you know, whilst, yes, of course, being able to cook and enjoy that may well be appropriate for some people and they may well be able to sort of do it in a way that creates a healthy food environment. For many, many families, that's really challenging to do. Yeah, there's the ideal um which I think you know people who work in nutrition like myself this is the ideal and and then there's the reality and um you know I think we're all too aware and recently I was covering food poverty so we're all too aware of the growing divide between the cost of healthy food and the real cost of food for what the majority of people can afford and so the ideal situation would be yes there are some amazing microwave meals now that there's some lovely really healthy really good quality not many additives but they're also really expensive so there is the the balance of well we'd all love to see this but the reality is we have to work with the best solutions that we can so for that family that's their best solution that's changing his habitual eating too much at two different occasions to one at a more appropriate time. So that's a positive step change for him in building healthier eating habits, which is which is fantastic. But we know on the whole that our food landscape, whilst there's been improvements to things like microwave meals to, to match our convenient need and the, you know, because of the pace of the world that we live in and, and everything that we need has to be quick. Um, I think our food landscape has really, really changed and 
what kind of um, with the marketing of certain foods and the abundance of certain foods and particularly the last 20 years, I think, with with more food that you can get quickly delivered to your home and, you know, all the, the, the increase in that from practically any food within 20 minutes, depending on how rural you are, you can you can be eating something. So living up to those behaviors and cravings and I could just have or we see an advert and of course the messages you know talk to you you can be eating it within 10 minutes depending if you live somewhere where you can have something quickly so in your opinion what impact is our environmental change and that pace of everything and that easy access to everything having on people's sort of health and weight because those behaviors can now so easily be fulfilled we can we can fancy something and we can have it really quickly we don't have to walk to get it which would put people off because oh, I, can't, I can't actually be bothered and then you the, the feeling's gone before we allow the feeling to go we're, we're giving into it a lot of the time because we're able to because everything's there for us when we want it and that's not going to change is it no it's not going to change and our food environment is particularly it's transforming all the time and has done for thousands of years you know I mean I think that's what we've got to realize is that you know it's not just suddenly in the last you know I mean you mean the amount of times you see the amount of Uber Eats and so on and so forth around the place has dramatically changed during Covid but they were here before then you know when food outlets were here before then and supermarket you know and so on and so forth we're, we're always dealing with change of course the food environment is important and of course, marketing and communications and advertising are all critical features of that. And I guess there are efforts afoot. So the work of the government and the work of a lot of governments is really how do they begin to sort of grapple and manage with the uh, creating an appropriate food environment that's that's aligned to the sort of the societies and lives that we want to lead. You know, we we don't want to be in a sort of a state of food control where the only thing that's accessible is is what our government tell us is healthy. And, you know, I, I don't want to be eating cardboard for the rest of my life because some crazy nutritionist has put it out there and that's what we should eat. You know, there's got to be, there is so many different dimensions to food and feeding behaviour. Just like exercise is not about burning calories, it's about much more than that. And I suppose that's what we've got to do. And so from my perspective, you know, yes, the food environment is critical, but the individual's existence within that food environment is also critical too. And what we've got to do, in my mind, is equip individuals with the abilities to function effectively in this environment and work with individuals and support individuals. Now, again, we're going back to this sort of tailored message because, you know, state-controlled food environments is not really what we, you know, is not really in a sort of democratic culture. And we are where we are. And so for us, well, what are the alternatives? Yes, influencing the food environment. And I do believe, I genuinely do believe, we are moving in a more positive food quality direction. Now, I think the problem we've got is we've got a food volume issue, not necessarily a food quality issue. And so, so in a sense, it's that sort of, you know, that direction is, is problematic. I guess, for me, the work that we are focused in on is how do we help individuals deal with that environment how how you're absolutely how do you deal with the cravings how do you attune your minds and emotions so to recognize it reflect on it and then choose in it either choose the behavior uh, and be okay with that behavior because the feelings of guilt are problematic 
or recognize you need an alternative behavior. And that's the trick, not necessarily um, yes or no. It's about understanding and being being connected to those emotional feelings, you know, feelings of physiological feelings of hunger, emotional feelings of comfort and need and, and social feelings of being part of that group are all the mix that we need to equip people with. And if we can equip people with those, and we know we can and we do on a regular basis, and that's what our data shows, that's what we achieve. When we do that, I think where we end up is a much more constructive environment and a much more um, successful due to capability of the people that we work with. Um, And yes, you know, of course, it'd be great if the food environment was such that obesity was not a problem. But that isn't a reality. So what we can equip is the individual. In my mind, the work that we do is all about equipping the individual and we'll leave the sort of government interventions to other people. I think that's definitely the key in terms of, of where I come from as well. Is to, You can't say no to people because nobody likes being told you can never eat that again. It only makes somebody want it even more. and It, it makes it more alluring. So people don't like that approach. Of course they don't. But people sometimes, like you mentioned, the, the mum lovingly feeding her children. We see that with, with parents lovingly feeding children, but not quite aware that perhaps it's not the best thing. There's a, a better alternative. There's a different way. And people just need to be informed. Once they're informed, they, as you say, they can work on almost controlling their behaviours, rerouting habits making an informed decision if somebody wants to you know get a just eats to the door why not you know food should be enjoyed what what upsets me with people with food is when they when they are so guilty about when they have no enjoyment from the food they they will not go on a night out because they're worried about what they won't be able to have or they won't they'll feel that they're they've done really well and you know which also is not a way we should be viewing if i've done really well and i've let myself down and and that's quite sad we we, we should all get enjoyment from food so if it's real enjoyment go with it enjoy it don't feel guilty as you say it's really detrimental to feel guilty after eating but be aware that you've made that decision and then live with it. And that, that's that's kind of like move on. Tomorrow's another day. If you don't want to have one tomorrow, make a conscious decision not to um, reroute those thoughts and feelings. And I think that is, of course, easier said than done. You know, we have a really emotional relationship with food and food is very, you know, it's a big driver. You know, we, we can really not think about anything but food sometimes you know we've all been around angry children when they're hungry you know <laughs> not much different than some grown-ups so, <laughs> so it's it, it's not easy but it's certainly doable and it's it's a much nicer feeling when you're in control of your food relationship when someone sits and they've literally eaten a whole pack of biscuits but haven't even enjoyed them didn't taste them didn't get any pleasure from them just ate them and then felt guilty for eating them. That's not real food enjoyment. So I think the work you're doing is is key in terms of empowering individuals to make informed decisions, which is the most important thing we can do living in an environment that we do where it's actually very hard to be thin because there's so much food available. We don't have to do a lot of exercise if we don't want to because everything's really easy for us. And it can feel like an uphill struggle for many people. So I think For me, I like the approach of everyone's unique and individual. Everyone has this emotional relationship with food that's driven by behaviors. It's not driven by greed. It's not driven by laziness. It's driven by a deeper biological connection with food. And once you understand that, 
you're more capable of, of making those those sort of food decisions and that doesn't mean never having certain foods ever again which is what people often think they think I'll never be able to have pizza or cake or chocolate ever again and that's no life not at all so is there anything um how can people access what you do is it, is it at the moment is it fairly regional are you hoping to 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 broaden out to bigger areas I head up at the university what's called an obesity institute um and we are we have what we call our sort of PPI hub which is really about how do we engage with the public it's sort of you know, um, public engagement work and interaction so we can learn and understand uh, and work collaboratively because that's a core part of the work that we do. So our Obesity Institute, Lee's Beckett, is one way to go there. And then through through More Life, we have a variety of programmes across country. A part of uh, NHS England, we provide digital weight management services Mm -hmm. through GP. So there's a, um, they can find out, through morelife.co.uk. Lovely. We'll put make sure the link's up with the podcast when it goes out as well. But it's been a really interesting insight into the, the work that you're doing, the science behind some of the research and, and the complexities of the human relationship with food, which I think we underestimate sometimes. And it's, it's really quite complicated. It's really emotional. We all have to eat. We have to eat all of our lives. Um, it's a lifelong relationship that we have to have with food. So we may as well enjoy it but we may as well make it work for us and not against us as much as we can. And, and that can feel like swimming uphill like a salmon against the, the stream of, you know, the food industry, which can bombard us with things that are not best sometimes. But we, we as long as we're making informed decisions, then we can we can make those decisions and know what we're choosing and why. And that isn't a case of denying ourselves. But generally, people have a balance. And it sounds so simplistic, doesn't it, to have a balanced relationship with food and a healthy, balanced diet, which can cover everything in moderation. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Paul. Uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. We are out of time, literally. No pleasure. Nice to meet you both. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Louise's Health Kick podcast with Louise Massier, discussing all things health and nutrition to show you that food and health are intrinsically linked and teaching you how amazing you can feel. Find out more at www.thehealthkick.co.uk or read her book, How Food Shapes Your Child, or get in touch on social media. This is a 1386 audio production. 